when I was in college, I went to college in downtown Chicago and uh, Moody Bible Institute, it's right downtown. And one of the things about living in the city, especially in some of these big buildings, I think my dorm, I don't know, it was 19, 20 floors, something like that. And it was a small building uh, in Chicago. But you'd get into these buildings and you'd look outside and it just seemed peaceful. Like there was nothing happening outside. It was just calm. And uh, then you might go outside and it's just the wind is whipping and it's freezing cold. And just especially in the, in the winter and in the spring, just it can be unbelievably cold out of nowhere. Even in the middle of the summer in the shadows of these buildings. But when you're inside and you're looking out, um, everything just seems calm. Even though the wind is blowing like crazy, it looks like everything's standing still. And the, the only way you can really know if the wind is blowing is if by chance you catch a glimpse of something like a flag that would move in the wind. And where the wind would catch it and it would whip and suddenly you see the evidence of the wind blowing in the city. And maybe you, you kind of have that experience here in Indiana, but I don't know about you, my house shakes when it blows really hard. I had that thought in my mind uh, over the last couple of weeks as we've been preparing. We're going to be studying the book of James. And James is all about... Uh, where's the evidence of your faith? Um, you, you say you have faith. You tell me the wind's blowing outside, but I can't see it. Show it to me. You, you tell me you've trusted Jesus. Um, where's it playing out in your life? You know, that, that phrase that I use often, if your faith, I think James would subscribe to it. If your faith hasn't changed you, uh, it probably hasn't saved you. And what we're going to see in James is a guy who's very concerned with your faith being put into motion, with you doing something about it and you demonstrating it with your life. And that's where we're headed this morning with the book of James. And we're starting a new series through this New Testament book. It's a letter by a guy named James, and we're going to be in it for about four months. As I mentioned, the subtitle of the series is Faith in Motion, because you're going to see that James is so concerned um, about showing your faith. Not just gaining saving faith, but that saving faith showing itself in your life. He's, he's the, he, he might be the original one to really subscribe to the idea, hey, if you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk. That's the apostle, James. And that's five chapters long. It can be read in one setting pretty easily. I'd encourage you to do that. In fact, if you look at your 110 homework today, uh, you're going to find out that's one of the things we're asking you to do is just read through the book of James in one setting and then make some notes on it and talk about it with your 110 group. So uh, with that, let me pray. And uh, we're not going to get very far into the book today. Just one verse. You're like, wow, this is going to take forever, isn't it? No, it's not. But, but today is going to be... <laughs> Today is we're just we're going to do some introductory stuff and get into the book of James. But tell you what, let me pray because I've got a whole bunch of content and I've got to decide what to say and what not to say this morning. And so uh, let me pray about that. Let me pray with me. Father, thank you for Jesus and uh, thanks for your grace to us through him. Um, Lord, the book of James is is one that is probably a favorite of many people because it's so practical. Jesus, it's your little brother who wrote it. And um, uh, are thankful for the way that he echoes your influence in his life. I pray, Holy Spirit, today that as I, as I introduce this letter, you'd help me to do it well and in a way that's helpful. 
and in a way that we would, uh, would see your grace and respond to it just as James did. Help me to know what to say, what not to say. Uh, Lord, I got way more than I can share this morning. So I pray that you'd help me with that. Um, guide our time today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So James chapter 1, we're going to start uh, right at the beginning of the book. And we're going to start and use James 1.1 as kind of an outline today. And you'll notice in your, in your message notes, there's nothing on the inside page. You're like, oh, that's, that must be a misprint. Something happened. No, it's just, it's just, it was hard to come up with a good outline for you today because today's a lot of introductory material. And so it's just open for you to be able to take some notes and jot some things down uh, that, that stand out to you that you learn this morning. But let's read James 1, verse 1. It starts out like this. James, a servant of God... And of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. There you go. That's all for today. Does that feed you? Well, I I think it will as we unpack this and we look at James' life. First off, you know what's helpful in studying a New Testament letter? Is understanding the anatomy of a letter. Because, uh, do you know, a lot of the New Testament, most of the books in the New Testament actually, are letters written to people. And they wrote letters in a little bit different way in the first century than we do today. For instance, it, it started off always with a, a greeting, but that greeting actually was preceded by the author's name. Notice what James writes. He writes, James. That, that's the first thing in, in Greco-Roman letters. It would always start with whoever's writing, would write, you'd write your name first rather than at the end of the letter like we do. You'd know right away who was writing to you. And then the second thing that would show up would be um, uh, who he was writing to. But in, in, in first century letters, it was generally just like, um, Joe to Bob, hello. I mean, it was just really simple greeting, and that's it. And, or maybe greetings and health, something like that. But in the New Testament, the writers in the New Testament, the apostles uh, expound on each of these pieces. Paul was most famous for this. When Paul wrote a letter, look at how he writes this letter to the Galatians. He says, Paul, he starts out with his name because he's writing it. And then he describes who he is, an apostle. Not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me. That was who was writing the letter to the Galatians. And if you look at each of the letters, all of them start this way. They start with somebody's name. Uh, Other than Hebrews, they start with somebody's name and then who it's written to. Right? And that's no, no secret here with James either. James says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about how James describes himself in a little bit here. Well, then it mentions the recipients. For James, he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In, in Galatians, Paul says, to the churches of Galatia. So he tells who he's writing to. We might just write, dear so-and-so, comma. Paul says his name. James says his name, who he is, and then to who it's written to. Uh, And then there's a greeting. The common greeting in a Greco-Roman letter was just greetings and health and some kind of well wishes for your physical well-being. But the New Testament writers, they don't don't care so much. I mean, they do care, but they don't care as much about your physical well-being as they do your spiritual well-being. So their greeting includes, you know, so it's it's Paul, uh, an apostle, blah, 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 to to the church in Galatia. And then here's what he says. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. They were, con- they were concerned with your spiritual well-being. Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father. 
James, however, just sticks with a pretty traditional greeting, doesn't he? James, an apostle or a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. James is just like, I'm getting to the point. We don't have time for all this nonsense. Let's go. I got stuff to tell you. Well, after the greeting, there would then be some kind of prayer of thanksgiving often in some of the Testament, in some of the New Testament letters and in the Greco-Roman letters, just a, a greeting of thanksgiving for the person. James kind of skips over that too because of the nature of his letter. Then there's the body of the letter and everything that they want to communicate. And then it would usually end with some personal remarks. Yeah, you know, tell, tell so-and-so, knock it off. Tell so-and-so I'm coming. Uh, by the way, I'll be there in a couple of weeks. Whatever that is, personal remarks and then a final closing or doxology in the New Testament. Letters. James really doesn't match this pattern very well. He only really hits the, the greeting <laughs> along with that, that pattern because he's writing to a whole bunch of churches. And the, the purpose of the letter of James is to be read among all these churches that are spread out all around the area and out and around from, from Israel. Well, one other thing before we really dive into this and start talking about who James is is you should understand that, that letters are occasional. Do you know what I mean by that? Letters are written for a specific occasion. Um, one of the errors sometimes when we interpret letters in the New Testament is we go through it and we assume that, like when James is writing this, that he's writing a whole systematic theology of, of all of his theology of the New Testament. Do you know what a systematic theology is? I'm getting in the weeds here with you a little bit. But it's a, it's a complete set of theology. It's like, um, here's everything the Bible teaches about God. That's a systematic theology. It systematizes theology. But none of the letters are like that. Uh, none of the letters contain everything. Even Paul's letter to the Romans. If someone would tell you that the letter to the Romans is Paul's, it's, it's all of Paul's theology. No, it's not. There's stuff that's not in Romans. You've got to compare it to the rest of Scripture. And you've got to understand that it's an occasional thing. It's written for a specific occasion, a specific purpose. And it's, it's not systematic theology, it's task theology. It's applying it to this specific task at hand, this specific situation. And so then you have to, as the interpreter, as you're reading God's word, be careful that you don't say, uh, when, when James or Paul or Peter says this, um, there's nothing else with it. That's it, that's it, nothing else. Because if you do, you're going to see when we get into James, you're going to be really, really confused if you do that. You have to compare it with the, the full canon of God's word. Does that make sense? You've got to interpret it in light of all of it. So with that in mind, let's get back to the text here. And uh, it starts out, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And he says, greetings. Well, first, let's look at who James is writing to. He's writing to, it says, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Do you know what? What is that? That's weird. Are they, they caught in some kind of dispersion? What is that? Well, if you know your Bible history and you know the plot line of the Bible, you know that about 800 uh, years prior to this, Something happened, and actually we were in that text in Ezra and in Haggai, where God's people, because they disobeyed the Lord, they were taken out of the promised land and exiled into modern-day Syria and Iraq. And they were pulled out of the land because of their sin. They were dispersed all over outside of Israel because of their sin. And it happens again in around, around 600 BC. And you get up to the point of Jesus 600 years after all of this. And 
Some people have come back and re-inhabited the land of Israel, but many are still scattered all over the place. Many are still in Iraq. Many are still in Syria. Some are even, we learn, all the way over into Rome and spread all throughout the Roman Empire. Some of them had probably left Israel because they were going to find uh, better economic conditions where they could go and work somewhere. We're going to find out that, that some of the people were spread out because of persecution in Jerusalem. And we'll see that. But, but suffice it to say that when James is writing, he, he's, he's a pastor of a group of people in, in Jerusalem. You're going to see this in a moment, that he's a pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 8, there's great persecution. So along with all the Jews who are scattered, then the, Christian, the Jews who have become Christians all scatter. And James, still concerned for all of his people, writes these letters that get dispersed throughout all of these churches of all these people who are displaced from Jerusalem now. And it's read in these places because James probably hears that, hey, all the people have moved, they've moved or not all of them, but many of them have moved because of persecution. And now they're buying into things that, uh, that they're, they're weakening their faith. They're not living it out. And, and they're being caught up in, in lies and, and they're believing things that aren't true. And man, I've got to write a letter to them because I care for their well-being. I care for their soul. And so he says, listen, here's how you ought to live. And he's writing primarily to believers. I think there's one section in the text where maybe he's not writing to believers, but to some of the other Jewish people who are in this place. And I'll explain that when we get there. But that's, that's the point of the letter. James is writing to all these people who have been dispersed from Jerusalem. And notice then he says greetings, which do you know what that word really is? It's really rejoice. It's the exact same Greek word as the word for rejoice. So think about it. All these people who've been dispersed because of persecution. They've been persecuted for their faith. They've, they've, they've fled and now they're, we find out they're, they're very poor and they're being taken advantage of by rich landowners. And they're in this spot and James is like, hey, don't be down. Rejoice. Greetings. Rejoice. That's the occasion of the letter. James is writing to, to, to these people, that he, many of whom he probably knew. Uh, who he cared about deeply, who were part of Jesus' church. But let's back up in verse 1, and let's talk about James and who he is. Uh, First off, James is identified here as the author. Would you agree with that? He says, I told you how letters work. It starts with the author. And what's the first word? James. So there's there's our author. It's this guy named James. Now, um, there's a handful of options Uh, for what James this is. Because did you know, depending on what scholar you read or what commentary you read, some would would contend there's uh, anywhere from four to eight, maybe even more Jameses in the New Testament. It was a really common name. Like if you were walking through Jerusalem in the first century and you you just yelled out, hey, James, five guys would probably turn around. It, it It was a very, very common name. And uh, there's a handful of them identified in Scripture. There's uh, James, the, the son of Alphaeus. Um, there's James, uh, the father of Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, but the other James, or another Judas. That's why he's identified as the son of James, so that people knew he wasn't Judas Iscariot. There's James, the son of De- Zebedee and brother of John. He's one of the sons of thunder, right? He's one of the disciples. And then there's this James. Well, one way to identify what James it is is that Almost every other time that a James is mentioned in the New Testament, it's mentioned with a qualifier. 
This was James, the son of Alphaeus. This is James, the brother of John. This is James, uh, the, uh, the father of Judas. But when James, this James shows up, it's just James. Everybody knew who he was. Why would they know? Well, because I want to contend to you that he was Jesus' younger brother. Look with me here for a second in Mark chapter 6. Did you know Jesus had brothers? Like, I never heard this before. What do you mean he had brothers? He had brothers and he had sisters. He wasn't, a, he wasn't an only child. Look at this. Mark 6 verse 1. He went away from there. Jesus went away from there. And he came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, so on a Saturday, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. They said, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Imagine, he comes back to his hometown and everybody knew him as just Jesus growing up. You know, snotty, runny knows Jesus when he's a little kid and grows up into this man and now he's back and where, where did he learn all this? That's incredible. Who is this guy? And look at verse three. They're, they go on there like, isn't this the carpenter? Uh, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Did you catch that? We get, we get the names of Jesus' brothers. He's at four of them. And they're listed in order, uh, likely in the order of their birth. That's how, how they would have written in that day. So James is probably the oldest, then Joseph, then uh, Judas, and then Simon. Isn't this their older brother? Are not his sisters here with us? His sisters aren't mentioned. So if it's sisters, plural, how many did he have at least? Two, yeah. That's a big family. Mary and Joseph were fruitful and multiplied after Jesus was born, weren't they? But you know, there's, there's really three options here in how to understand uh, his brothers. Uh, do you want to hear them? Here, here's the three options. The first option, some would say, no, they're not. Uh, they're, they're actually his stepbrothers. See, what happened was, is Joseph was married before he ever met Mary. And uh, in that marriage, they had uh, four sons and some daughters. And uh, then his wife passed away. And then he married Mary. And they had Jesus. Um, and uh, that, that was all that they had. Now, the problem with that is there's absolutely no evidence of it in the text. None whatsoever. And uh, it, it just doesn't make sense. The, uh, the second option, if, if they were his stepbrothers, the second option is that uh, they were his cousins. His cousins. You know, I mean, really, that word brothers, what it can mean is it can mean uh, a whole range of people in a family. It can mean your, your mom, your dad, your sister, your cousins, your extended family. And that's, that's what it means, is cousins. Here's the problem with that. It, the word used here, the Greek word is called aldafas. I'm saying it wrong. But like Philadelphia, right? Brotherly love, it's that word, but in Greek for brother. Well, there's also a Greek word uh, for cousin that's used in the New Testament. So why wouldn't, if they were his cousins, why wouldn't they say um, his cousins were there and his cousin's sisters? It doesn't say that. It says his brothers and his sisters. Now, what you're going to find out is that the reason uh, people have come up with these ideas about maybe they're his stepbrothers or maybe they're his cousins is they're trying to preserve something called the perpetual virginity of Mary. 
And long story short, what happened is a couple hundred years after Jesus left the earth and ascended to be in heaven, a group of guys, uh, scholars got together and they decided, you know what? Uh, We think Mary uh, never had any relations with her husband, Joseph, after uh, Jesus was born. And she remained a virgin forever. And the problem is there's, there's no, no evidence of that anywhere in the text. Now, is it, is it, are some of these possible? Possible, but not probable or likely in any way, shape, or form if you're going to be a good student of God's word. The most likely and the, the clear reading of the text is that these are Jesus' half-brothers, that they're his uterine brothers. They, they, they shared a mother but they had, they, Jesus obviously, Joseph was his adopted dad, right? And so James here, I believe the text is pretty clear, and we'll see it in other places in the text where it references this, that James is actually Jesus' little brother, his half-brother. Uh, one last thing about James, too. Do you know his name isn't James? You're like, what? Hold on, come on. You're really, you're throwing me off, Josh. No, it's... I mean, it is, but the only reason we call him James is because of some weird things in English translation over the years. Really, his name, if you could see it in the Greek, is, is uh, the same name as Jacob. And uh, in, other, in other languages, sometimes it's even translated still as Jacob. So Jacob, James, he's named after uh, one of uh, the, the patriarchs in the Old Testament. But, but with James, we, we know that he's Jesus' half-brother, his little brother, but... We don't know a whole lot about him like we do some of the other apostles. Like we know Paul's story and we know how he came to faith. And we, we know things about him through his letters and through the book of Acts. But with James, there's, there's some things there that we can see and gather, but not nearly as much. And so he's not nearly as well known. One of the things about him being Jesus' half-brother, he was not one of Jesus' disciples. Did you know that? There was, a, there was a James who was one of Jesus' disciples, but it's not his little brother, James. Um, in fact, and we look at the text, um, look with me a second in uh, uh, John chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. Uh, one of the things about James, Jesus' little brother James, is that um, he appears to for sure disbelieve his brother in the beginning. Now, here's one of the things. You, you've got family, right? How many of you, you didn't grow up here and your family, you're like me, your family is somewhere else or even spread out across uh, Indiana or the United States or whatever. Is that, is that your story? That's me. Now, I see my family occasionally. I see them intermittently. They're still part of my life. My mom was actually here just last week. But we're not in and out of each other's life on a daily basis. Like maybe some families, if your whole family is here. And... Uh, what happens is uh, over time, uh, we've, we've grown apart in some ways, but I still love her. I still care for her and same with my brothers. But you ever notice that if you've got family from a ways away and you get together and um, you, you love to see them, but there's, there's a certain disconnect there just because of the distance after a while. Well, that, think about that in terms of Jesus. After he uh, grows to be a man and he takes off into ministry, there, there's separation now from him and his family, and they're still involved in each other's lives, but uh, only intermittently. We saw it when he comes back to Nazareth, and everybody's like, who, who is this guy? What happened to him? Uh, what an incredible teacher. Well, one example, John chapter 7, um, 
Now, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. Notice his brothers said to him, I believe this is his four brothers. I think they're kind of goading him a little bit. They're like, oh, really? Really? That's who you're claiming to be God? This is who you are? Really, Jesus? Really? We grew up with you. We know, we, we, we know who you are. You changed our diapers. We know you. Uh, you. This is really you? Really? Well, why don't you go prove it? Come on, go prove it. You ever see the little brothers? Like, um, one of them's like, yeah, I can, I, I, can, I can jump off the roof and no problem. Oh, yeah, prove it. And the, the brother helps him get up on the roof and gives him a shove, right? <laughs> I'll be fine. Yeah, right. Well, that's kind of, I mean, yeah, why, don't you, why don't you prove it? Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. I think there's some disbelief here. If you do these things, then show yourself to the world. Come on, what's the holdup? Look at verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. On another occasion, uh, Jesus comes uh, he's, he's preaching, he's doing ministry, and uh, I believe what happens is his family hears he's claiming to be God. And guess what happens? They show up at the house, and uh, the text says that they showed up to grab him and to take him home. Now imagine your relative, who you're not real connected with, who's away for a while. Um, all of a sudden, you start getting reports, you get emails from some of his friends. Hey, your brother? He's going crazy. He's claiming to be God. Oh, come on. Really? No, no, I'm telling you. He, he's out here. He's claiming to be God. He's, he's doing things. It's just, it's really weird. All these people are following him. I think it's a cult. I think he's in a cult. You, you got to do something. What would you do? If you heard your sibling or your son, moms, your adult son started claiming to be God, what would you do? You'd freak out a little bit, wouldn't you? Would you get in the car and try to go find him and be like, um, hey, you're coming home. I know I love you, but this, oh, you've gone a little far. Come on. We got We just, we got to get you home. We got to get you home. And then into a hospital. We're not telling you that we're just taking you home. How many of you, you'd be like that, wouldn't you? That explains a little bit how Jesus, um, it, it's a true story, isn't it? His, his mom and his brothers show up. You can read about it in Mark. They show up and they're like, um, you, you've got to go. We, we've got to take you home. We've got to pull you out of here. You're going crazy. Now imagine what that was like for Jesus, humanly speaking, because Jesus was fully God, but he was also, he lived fully in his humanity. He he didn't, um, he only lived partly as a man. He lived fully as a human being. And he never dipped into his deity. He never pulled out his God card. He, He did all of his miracles and everything, I believe, through the power of the Holy Spirit working perfectly through him. He knows exactly what it's like to live as a man, tell me, if that was you, would that be lonely? Imagine if you're at work next week and uh, your mom and all your siblings show up. <laughs> and they're like, you've gone crazy. Come on, let's go home. But we want to help. It was an intervention is what it was. Now imagine how lonely that might have been at times for Jesus in ministry. To feel like his family had abandoned him. That even they didn't believe and get it, the people he was closest to for so much of his life. I mean, these are the people who knew who he was, aren't they? 
That's what's so curious about reading James is James grew up with Jesus. All the things that, that are hidden from us in the text that we don't know about. Like we don't know uh, what, how, how good of a baseball player Jesus was as a little boy. Like did his little league team, was he on the travel team or not? Like, how, like who was he? What, as he? We don't know much about him growing up, do we? But guess who did? His family did. James did. And James knew all these things about him. And even James uh, disbelieved in the beginning. Some of you, that's, that might be exactly where you are walking in here this morning or listening to my voice. You, you've heard all these things about Jesus, but, but just like James in the beginning with his older brother, you know what, you're, you're thinking, um, I, don't, I don't know that I buy that. That's a little bit crazy. Well, maybe you would come along on the same journey that James comes on. Uh, because James, as part of his family, knew all these things about him. He, he surely would have told us in his letter if Jesus had ever sinned, wouldn't he? He surely would have. But look at what he writes. He says, G- James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say of my brother. He doesn't say the little brother of Jesus. He, he's an incredibly humble guy. He, he, he could totally have, have laid it all out, who he was, and gained authority. Which, by the way, I think points again to the veracity of this book. That it is true. That, that nobody's trying... I mean, if you would have written this 100 years later, you would have wanted to gain some authority. And you would have said, well, James, oh yeah, the brother of Jesus. That'll get people's attention. But when he's writing, everybody knows who he is. They know who he is. He just has to say, I'm James. But how does he go from disbelief and, and, and going to do an intervention on his brother to where he writes and he says, uh, this, this is, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you get there? I would never get there with any of my brothers. And I know they would never get there with me. How does James get there? Well, as you keep reading, you get to the foot of the cross. Do you, do you remember who was at the cross when Jesus died? His mom, right? His mother was there. Now, let's think back to this illustration again. Let's imagine one of your brothers is the one who, who you thought was crazy and had declared himself to be God. And he's going to be killed for that. And uh, there's going to be an execution. And you know that your mother is going to the execution. What would you do? Would you go along to console your mom? I hope you would. And they, they go. I think probably Jesus' brothers, most of them were there, if not all of them, when he's crucified. And there's um, incredible sorrow. Can you imagine that? Everything that they had feared when, when they tried to intervene and say, hey, we need you to come home because you're going crazy or they're going to kill you. Uh, all those fears came true. And he was killed for claiming to be God. But then three days later, what happens? He rises from the grave. We, we celebrated it last Sunday, right? Jesus didn't stay dead. He, he rose from the grave. And um, check this out. Do you know what happens after Jesus' resurrection, what he does? See, I think even up to this point, still none of Jesus' brothers believed in him as God. I don't think any of them Believed in him as the savior. But it took something dramatic. It, it would take something dramatic for me to ever believe in any of my siblings as the savior of the world, as God incarnate. Wouldn't it you? And you'd just seen him die? Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me. 
Paul writes, he goes, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then look at verse 6. Then he appeared, after his resurrection, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom, Paul writes, are still alive at this time, though some have fallen asleep. And in verse 7, then he appeared to who? To James. Which James? It's his little brother, James. There's no qualification on which James it is. It's his brother. He, 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 Jesus appears to his little brother. And then to the rest of the apostles. Can you imagine what's going through James's mind at this point? Maybe he had even heard uh, Jesus had resurrected from the grave. And what's going on now? All of a sudden, he appears to him. Can, can you imagine? You, you, just, you just witnessed your brother uh, be murdered on the cross. And then uh, a handful of days later, who is it? The door opens. <laughs> Did you fall over? I'd fall over. What was that like when he appeared to his brother? And I believe then from this moment on, we see a dramatic change in the way James is described in the text. And, and he becomes a passionate follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he becomes a powerful leader of the church. He and one of Jesus' other brothers, Judas or Jude, you might know him as because he wrote one of the New Testament books as well. They both become powerful leaders and pastors in the church that their brother started. Worshiping their brother. How crazy is that? It's unbelievable. That's James. That's the guy who's writing this book that we're about to study. His older brother was Jesus. And he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Look at uh, Acts chapter 15. What, what happens in Acts chapter 15 is um, uh, Paul is, is coming back to Jerusalem and there's a council in Jerusalem where um, they're trying to decide uh, what requirements are there from the law on the Gentiles. And this, by the way, uh, this passage has incredible importance for you and me in our lives as followers of Jesus. Because it, it frees us and it demonstrates God's grace in a huge way. But, but notice James' role in it. Basically what happens is, is they say there's, um, there, uh, there's no requirement of circumcision for Gentiles. They just need to, to love the Lord and obey him. Look at verse 13 of chapter 15. After they finished speaking, then James replied. So Paul's there, Barnabas is there, others are there um, in this uh, private meeting of some of the leaders. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may, speak, may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has held in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 
What James is saying is, um, listen, I think it's pretty clear that the gospel is, is extended not only to Jewish people, but to the Gentiles. And the only thing we should hold on them is for them uh, to, to love the Lord Jesus, to repent, and then to live a life that honors him. That's, that's my paraphrase of what he says there. We're not going to add any other things to it. And the reason this is important, too, is because when we look at the book of James, this happens in A.D. 49 or A.D. 50, this council. And uh, James' letter had been written prior to this. He writes his letter prior to this where he lays out all these, uh, here's how you should live. Here's how, how to live out your faith for, for Jewish Christians. And now if, if those things were some kind of legalism that you had to obey all these things to be saved, wouldn't he have said, no, there, there's all these rules that you have to follow. Really what he's writing in the book of James then is an outworking of their faith, not a requirement of their salvation. Just like there's no requirement on the Gentiles other than to repent and believe. In Jesus Christ. And the book of James is probably, many, many believe it's, it's the earliest New Testament book. Now it doesn't show up first because they're organized in a different way in your Bible. But it's probably the earliest written as early potentially even as, as 45 BC. 15 years, less than 15 years after Jesus' death on the cross. Um. And James is a pastor at the time he writes it. And, and by the way, if you want more evidence of, of James' growth into a leader in the church and a pastor in the church, he really becomes even more prominent, according to the text, than Peter. And Peter was the one that, that Jesus said to him, on you I will build my church. Now how do, where, where do I get that from? Well, Paul, when he writes his letter to the Galatians, we were looking at that greeting earlier. He talks about his, his trip to Jerusalem, and he goes to see James. And, and not only James, and by the way, this is after James, the brother of John, had been murdered by Herod in, uh, in, in Acts chapter 12. So he's talking about clearly James, Jesus' little brother, because he says in, in Galatians 1, he calls him James, the brother of our Lord. But then in Galatians, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 1, then in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes this. He says, and when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. James was a leader of the church. He's listed first among the leaders because of his priority in the church. And Paul even defers to James. That's the authority of the man who wrote the letter that we're about to study. Even the apostle Paul deferred to him in ministry. He goes to him, he appeals to him in Jerusalem. He, he's considered by Paul to be a pillar of the church. And he says, because uh, they recognize God's grace to me, they uh, gave me the authority to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. Do you see all this? And here's why this matters, is because when we read this book, we need to see a few things. Uh, one, that it is authoritative. It, sometimes we look at the book of James and we think it's just a scattershot, buckshot, sort of all kinds of random things when you read it. And where's his train of thought? When we get into the text next week, I'll, I'll explain to you how I believe James uh, unpacks this in terms of thought for thought and why it makes a ton of sense. The other thing, when we get into chapter 2, some people will say, well, uh, Paul said that we were justified by, by grace alone through faith alone. But then James is over here saying, you're justified by your works. What gives? They seem to be in conflict with one another. 
And we can see clearly here in the text that Paul actually defers to James. They're not in conflict with one another. They work together with one another. But while Paul's concern was uh, what constitutes saving faith, uh, James' concern was what constitutes serving faith. James is like, here's what your faith looks like. Paul's like, here's uh, how you get faith. And they totally agree with one another. There isn't a contradiction. Some say there is. But there's not. Now the danger, there's danger though on both sides. Because if you go totally on the side of Paul, you say, "Ah, James is all about works and I don't need to worry about works because here's what Paul says. On the flip side, if I go all about James, I get over here and I'm like, James says I'm supposed to do all these things. And if I don't do these things, I'm not a Christian. And if you don't do these things, you're not a Christian. And we get into legalism. It's not either or, it's both and. There's incredible grace in Jesus Christ, but that grace should reveal itself in good works, James tells us. If I have one without the other, I err, don't I? That's why James says faith without works isn't faith at all. It's dead. Faith without works is dead. So don't be over here just preaching works, works, works. Do this, do this, do this. Look, here's what James says. Why aren't you doing this? Well, yeah, but here's also what so much else of Scripture says. And I'm doing these things by God's grace and I'm growing to become like that. And on the flip side, you can't just ignore what James writes either. What you're going to find when we start studying this book is is it's going to punch you in the gut and you're going to be like, oh man, I really fail at that. But if you don't understand it also in light of God's grace to you in Jesus Christ, you're going to come away very defeated and feel like there's no hope for you when there is. So you got to see both. Now, a couple last things about James and then we'll wrap up the morning. And I know today is definitely a different day in the sense of I'm giving you a lot of introductory material but, but I'm hoping that if you haven't gone on that journey like James has from disbelief to belief, that maybe you would. Um, because James is an incredible guy. In fact, um, a couple random facts about James. He, his nickname was James the Just. So not only does he tell us all these things to do, but he, he seemed to have lived it out. He can speak with authority on it. That'd be like, you know, hey, holy Hank. Like some guy, you know, and he's just like, like, that's his nickname. Can you imagine if your nickname, because of the way you obeyed the Lord, was something like that? Do you know, by the way, do you, he had another nickname, according to church tradition. Do you know what it was? James? Anybody know? Camel Knees. Camel Knees. Yeah, old Camel Knees. That's what he was called. Do you know why? Because his knees were so scarred from being in prayer all the time. That's actually a name he's referred to as in some of the writings outside of the Bible is Camel Knees. That was his nickname. Which reminds me, this Friday, maybe you develop some Camel Knees, start working on them. And you join us because we're going to spend 30 hours of consecutive prayer for our church. 30 hours of consecutive prayer. You know, if we expect God to do anything in and through our church and our ministry, if we're not praying, listen, hey, I don't care what your view is on the 30 for 30 journey. Do you love your church? Are you willing to pray? Come pray. Sign up and pray. We're going to pray from 12 noon on Friday until 6 p.m. on Saturday, 30 hours of prayer. And there's going to be lists of things you can pray for in here. And uh, you can, there's one list where you can walk through the facility and you're just going to pray for the ministries that happen there. There's other lists where you can pray for different ministry leaders and ministries that are happening and for our community. 
And we're just going to bathe those 30 hours in prayer for our church. Would you sign up and join us in prayer? Maybe you take a half hour, an hour, two hours. You can sign up out in the narthex. You can sign up online if you go to wawaseebible.com slash pray. If somebody's already got the slot you wanted, take it with them. There's like four or five slots for each one, and you can, you can still come and pray with them. But the goal is that we'd have somebody here for 30 straight hours praying, and then we don't have to, I don't have to get up in the middle of the night and come unlock the door for you to get in and out. But we can just leave things cared for here with people. Would you consider that? Maybe as a small group, you'd take a couple hours. If you're unsure, what am I going to pray about for an hour? Well, trust me, you're going to have all kinds of stuff to pray about. We'll have lists of things for you set up in here and in the, in the lobby and elsewhere. But I would just, I'd plead with you, come pray for your church. Join us in prayer. Amen? And let's be like James. And we're going to dive into the text further now next Sunday and really get into the body of his letter. Today, again, was a lot of introduction. But as you leave, I guess I would challenge you to be like James. Be humble like him, recognizing your identity in light of who Jesus is. Be humble like him, devoted to prayer. Be humble like him, living out your faith. Read the text this week. Study it. Look for examples of of how the Lord uh, is prodding your heart from this incredible book. From his word. Amen? All right, let me pray. We're going to sing, take our offering, and then we'll call it a morning. Father, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for your grace to us through him. Um, Lord, it's, in, it's, it's just such a testimony to the truth, Jesus, of who you are as God, uh, that your brothers came to faith in you. Nobody knows us better than our family. If, if you had ever sinned, if you had ever, uh, if any of the things written about you weren't true, surely they would have, have written otherwise. But none of them did. In fact, they, they confirmed it in their writings, in James and in Jude. So I pray, Lord, for each of us. I pray for those maybe who were like James walking in here this morning, just doubting and unsure of who you are. The Holy Spirit, you might grab their heart today and that they would turn in repentance to you. I pray for those of us who have done that, Jesus, that over the coming weeks and months, you would do the same thing uh, through your spirit. Grab our hearts and draw us toward greater obedience, towards living that faith out in wisdom and with courage. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our church. And we pray all of this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.